Let's give attention to God's word now. The book of Judges, chapter 20, and beginning with verse 29. Then Israel set men in ambush all around Gibeah. And the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day and put themselves in battle array against Gibeah, as at the other times. So the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people, as at the other times in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the field about 30 men of Israel. And the children of Benjamin said, They are defeated before us as at first. But the children of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. So all the men of Israel rose from their place and put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Geba. And 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Gibeah, and the battle was fierce. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city, whereupon the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them And there was the whole city going up in smoke to heaven. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities they destroyed in their midst. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah toward the east. And 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. Then they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, and they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways. Then they pursued them relentlessly up to Gidom and killed 2,000 of them. So all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, and they stayed at the rock of Rimmon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword. From every city, men and beasts, all who were found, They also set fire to all the cities they came to. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Judges chapter 20. Let's once again ask for God's help in a brief word of prayer as we come to his word this morning. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray that you would be pleased to draw near to us, to give us your grace and strength now as we hear what your word has for us. Father, we ask that you would be pleased to grant us very open hearts, that we might have no resistance to the word, but rather that we might recognize and acknowledge that this part two of your holy book is for our guidance, for our comfort, for our direction, and for our encouragement. Help us then, Lord, to receive it and to receive it as the word of Christ, to guide and to shepherd and to sustain and to nourish his people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Judges chapter 20 is a hard chapter to choose a place to jump into. For one thing, it's all one story. And for another thing, there's a certain amount of repetition, almost no matter where you get into it. That's part of how 
Hebrew narrative generally works is they'll give you a little overview of what happened, and then they go back in and fill in the details along the way. And as they're filling in the details, there's a little bit of flashback. There's things that you could have been told earlier, but that you're only just being told now. So sometimes what seems repetitive, what seems unnecessary, is part of the technique. And that happens in the section we've read where they've kind of told us the course of the battle. They've told us what happens, but then the point of view of the narrative shifts and they start to tell us what is happening, but now from the viewpoint of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, just because this is not the most familiar chapter in most people's Bibles, let me remind you of where we are and how we got to this point. It's the period of the judges. It's early in the period of the judges. The people who had conquered the promised land with Joshua, they have mostly died. And this new generation is not living up to them. We know it's early in the period of the judges because Phinehas, Aaron's grandson, is still the high priest. But Israel has fallen far and fallen very quickly. So a Levite, whose name we don't know, and his concubine had some sort of domestic trouble. She went off to her dad's house. After four months, he went to get her back. They were delayed with some lavish hospitality, but eventually they started out. They started out a little later in the day than they should have, and they had to spend the night. They didn't want to spend the night in Jerusalem because that was still under heathen control. So they went to the Benjamite city of Gibeah. But in the city of Gibeah, they found tragedy. They found disaster. The Benjamites behaved very much like the Sodomites had behaved in Genesis chapter 19. Well, the result of that was that the concubine was mistreated. She wound up dying. And the Levite picked her up in the morning, put her on a donkey, took her home, sawed her body into 12 pieces, and sent her dismembered corpse throughout the tribes of Israel to let them know what had happened. They gathered together in an assembly. They asked the Benjamites to turn over the wicked men from Gibeah to receive punishment. But the Benjamites did not do that. Instead, they mustered their own army to defend Gibeah. They put tribe over truth. They valued more their family connections than they valued the righteousness of the kingdom of God. And so now there's a civil war. The rest of Israel had asked God who should go up first, and the answer was Judah. So Judah went up one day and sustained heavy losses. They went up another day and sustained heavy losses. After two days of fighting, they've lost 40,000 men. So once again, they asked the Lord, should we go to battle against our brother Benjamin? And the Lord says, go, and this time you'll have the victory. And they prepare a stratagem. They have 10,000 men lying in ambush. So the bulk of the army is going to come and attack Gibeah. They're going to draw the Benjamites after them. When they suffer any losses, they're going to retreat. And they're going to draw the Benjamites further and further away from the walled town. Then the men who are in ambush will come, will set fire to the town. They'll trap them in a pincer movement, and they'll put an end to the civil war. And that's what happens. All but 600 Benjamites are killed. And yes, that does include the women and the children who lived in the other towns and villages throughout Benjamin. Now, with all of that by way of background and by way of overview, the part that we read specifically focuses on the experience of Benjamin 
It's not exclusively so, but it's primarily what did this look like from the point of view of the Benjamites. For instance, in verse 32, it says, the children of Benjamin said, they are defeated before us at the first. Or then again, in verse 34, the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. And then in verse 35, you get this key phrase, the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. That verse is the key to the whole thing. What is going on here? Well, the Lord has seen the dismembered body of the concubine. The Lord has seen that Benjamin did not execute justice, but instead rose up to defend the wicked men who had brought this about. And so the Lord intervenes. But the rest of Israel wasn't that much better, and that's why they sustained heavy losses before the Benjamites were defeated. But now the Lord is involved. This sort of holy war of extermination that they were supposed to engage in against the Canaanites, they're having to apply to themselves. Now, after that then, after verse 35, where the Lord defeated Benjamin, notice verse 36. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. They started off overconfident. They thought, the children of Israel are defeated before us as at the first. They did not know that disaster was there. But then the tide turned, the Lord intervened, and now Benjamin could see that they were overconfident. Now they're aware of their defeat. And so now they begin to run away. The men of Benjamin panicked, it says in verse 41. For they saw that disaster had come upon them, and therefore they turned their backs in the direction of the wilderness. They tried to get away from the battle, but the battle overtook them. They surrounded the Benjamites. They chased them. They trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah. In that encounter, 18,000 died. Then some turned and fled toward the wilderness, towards the Rock of Rimmon, but 5,000 were cut down. They pursued them relentlessly. There's a detail here that you wouldn't necessarily notice unless you consulted the original languages. In chapter 19, where it's talking about how the concubine was mistreated, it says that the men of Gibeah gleaned her all night long. In other words, they abused her over and over. That same word is used here of how the army of Israel was relentless in their pursuit of the army of Benjamin. They gleaned them. They picked off the stragglers. And the upshot was only 600 men of Benjamin were left. If archaeology has detected the right site, there's a big rock. It has a variety of caves in it. And so that was a stronghold. They didn't stop to besiege it. They went away and dealt with the rest of Benjamin, and we'll learn more about what happened with those 600 men, Lord willing, on a future occasion when we come to chapter 21. But for today, we've seen it from Benjamin's point of view. The Lord intervened, disaster overtook them, and they were gleaned as the men of Gibeah, whom they rose to defend, had gleaned the concubine. That's a rough story, isn't it? What are the lessons for today. What are we supposed to get out of this? Well, one lesson that we really do need to get out of this is that God is a God of vengeance. 
You remember, God teaches us this. He says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. God prohibits us from taking vengeance, not because there's never a time and a place for vengeance, but because that is his prerogative. He's the one who is in charge of it. Now, there's more than one reason for that. One is that we can't be trusted to take vengeance within the limits of justice. That's a very good reason for us to be prohibited from it. Another one is that we are not the moral governors of the universe. That's another very good reason for us not to take vengeance. Another good reason for that is that we don't have the equipment. We don't have the qualifications. You need a perfectly righteous character. You also need power to be able to take vengeance. And we lack both of those things. So we relinquish our demand for vengeance. We turn it over to the Lord, not because every kind of vengeance is always and universally wrong, but because this is God's prerogative. Only God can be trusted to take a righteous vengeance. But here, God did take a righteous vengeance. And that really comes out in the detail about the language that the Benjamites were gleaned as the concubine was gleaned. That's a grim image. When you apply it to what's happening, that's a very striking metaphor. When you just apply it to somebody making a second sweep through their vineyard to get any grapes that the pickers left, that's not so bad. But when you apply it to assault, when you apply it to war, that's a horrifying metaphor. But the connection of language shows you that victims are not left without justice. This concubine was from the tribe of Judah. She was horrifically mistreated. She was gleaned by men of Benjamin. Well, now an army largely comprised of men from Judah gleans the army of Benjamin. Victims are not left without justice. That's one reason that it's good news that God is a God of vengeance. We sometimes want a God who says, no, no, there's no vengeance. There's no justice. But think about all those who have suffered injustice. Think about those who have been horrifically mistreated. Is that good news for them? Not even a little bit. So vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That is good news for those who have suffered unjustly. Maybe nobody else really cared about that concubine, but God did. Maybe that concubine was in the wrong on multiple levels, but God still cared about her mistreatment. We don't relinquish every right by our misbehavior. We've all done things we shouldn't have done. It doesn't mean that we have no rights. It doesn't mean that unjust treatment of us does not matter. There's also a lesson from the fact that Benjamin had two days of victory before disaster came upon them. And that is that temporary success is not a reliable indication of God's favor. Sometimes people think that way. They're like, well, I did this and, you know, some people would criticize me for it, but it's working out okay. I got away with it, so it can't have been that bad. Guess again, God's justice is not always the swiftest, but God's justice is very thorough. 
Or then again, we can look at it this way. Judah and the rest of Israel also sustained heavy losses. And sometimes there is this fear with regard to the doctrine of justification by faith. We're justified by faith. Our good works are irrelevant to our justification. All our bad works are done away with. And sometimes people do have a concern. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Does that mean that God's children can get away with whatever? Is God like a nepotistic father? Oh, it doesn't matter what my children do. No consequences for them. Nothing bad happens to them. No punishment. No correction. You know what? It's my son. He could get away with it. Well, that would basically make God the corrupt oligarch at the top of a corrupt system, right? And his cronies are favored. Now, sometimes that accusation is made against those who believe in justification by faith, that that's basically the image we're presenting. But that's not accurate. That's not accurate for a couple of reasons. One, of course, is that sins are punished in Christ, so there's that. But another is that judgment begins at the house of God. God does bring consequences upon his children. Of course, we're delivered from eternal wrath, but that doesn't mean we get away scot-free. Judah and Israel were not destroyed down to the ground like Benjamin was, but they did sustain heavy losses. There was correction for them as well. But you can also draw this lesson, because this is not the final judgment. This isn't everything being sorted out. This is temporary. This is provisional. This is partial. You know who doesn't receive any punishment in this story, as far as we can tell? The Levite. And he's not a great character. These 600 men from Benjamin who survived, they don't seem to be any better than the other members of Benjamin. In this life, in this world, imperfect, problematic justice, justice that is not perfect, justice that is not everything it should be, that's usually the best that we can hope for. And there's many reasons for that. One reason, of course, is that if we're held to the standard of strict justice, that's not going to turn out that well for us. We have to be a little flexible just for the sake of our own survival, don't we? If God should mark iniquities, who could stand? Justice is imperfect in this world, and on the one hand, that's not good. On the other hand, that gives us all a little bit of wiggle room, which we definitely need. Now, so far... The only good news is that God is a God of vengeance. (laughs) That's the good news you've heard so far this morning. And it is good news. We need to relish that. We need to rejoice in that. We need to make the application then we're going to leave vengeance in God's hands. Since we need mercy, we're going to need, we're going to be merciful. Since justice is always imperfect, we're going to be patient. We're going to content ourselves with imperfect justice in this life and know that God will sort it all out in the day of judgment. But we don't have to tell victims, well, what are you going to do? That's the way the world is. The strong will take what they can and the weak will bear what they must. We can say something more than that. We can offer hope in light of the coming judgment. But we can also notice a great contrast as well. We can see that this temporary, this partial, this provisional, this imperfect justice highlights the need for something better, and it highlights the reality of something better. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does he do? 
Well, he comes. His fan is in his hand. He winnows his threshing floor. He gathers the wheat into the garner, and the chaff he burns with unquenchable fire. Vengeance does belong to Christ, and he will execute it, as well as salvation. But Jesus doesn't just punish sin. He purifies it. He takes it away. Israel was taught to look for a deliverer who would turn away iniquity from Judah, who would not just punish offenses like this, but who would prevent them from happening, who would change the hearts so that people don't act this way, who would change hearts of people who are like the Levite, who are like his concubine, who are like the wicked men of Benjamin, who are like the very imperfect people in Israel and Judah. That's what we need. It is good news that God is a God of vengeance, but it's also very good news that the Lord Jesus comes before vengeance falls and that he takes away iniquity. He takes it away in the sense that he forgives it. Yes, but he also takes it away in the sense that he purifies our hearts from it. You see, left to ourselves, by our own devices, this would be our lives as well. You don't have to look far to prove that. Just look around you in the society we live in. There are things as bad as what happened to this concubine happening around us all the time, every day. Our society is not better than this society. And guess where we live? Guess who we know? Guess who we rub shoulders with? Guess what we're like? Unless and until the Lord Jesus turns away iniquity from our hearts. But he does do that. He does change us. He does show us a better way and he draws us on it. But there's also good news in the great contrast with the Lord Jesus. Because he bears the full judgment that we deserved. You see, there's no partial justice there. There's no imperfection in the penalty that was paid for our sins. That's why we sing Jesus paid it all, not 90%, not 80%, but all. That's what we needed, was somebody who would endure the full extent of, of our punishment. And that's what we mean when we say in the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell. We mean that he bore the wrath of God. He bore the fullest extent of our punishment. We're not making a comment on where was Christ's soul during the time that his body was in the grave. According to his words to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, we believe that Christ's soul was in paradise. So when it says he descended into hell, what's it talking about? It means that hell came to him on the cross, that he endured the wrath of God there. He endured everything that we deserved to suffer. That means that God's justice is perfectly upheld in our justification, in the forgiveness of our sins, in our being taken to heaven. You know, if you just looked at it, if you left out the middle part, if you just said, Any one of you seated here today or me standing here today, that person got into heaven. You say, hold on a second. That's not right. 
That can't possibly be what they deserved. Right? It is not what we deserved. That's why you can't leave out the middle part. That Jesus died in our place. That he rose for our justification. That his righteousness is ours. And that he works in us. That he transforms us. That he takes away our sinful heart to give us a heart of flesh. If you leave that part out, then sure, X name in heaven makes no sense at all, would be wildly unjust. But in Christ, God has found a way. Now, I alluded to this earlier, that God's favor does not sponsor unrighteousness. God does not forgive your sins so that you can go on sinning, so that you can sin more with less restraint, so that you can double down in a sinful lifestyle. That is not the meaning of God's righteousness. That is not the purpose of God's forgiveness. And anybody who takes it that way, it's just a demonstration that their heart has not been changed. As I said, this is one reason that the army of Israel suffered such heavy losses before the army of Benjamin was defeated. It's also, this idea is found in the psalm that we use for our call to worship in Psalm 99. It mentions Moses, Aaron among his priests, Samuel among those who call on his name. And then notice what it says here. It says, you answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Notice the connection. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. If we belong to the Lord, And if we go astray, we can confidently expect as one of the blessings Christ has acquired for us in the new covenant that his chastening hand will fall upon us. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't faint when the Lord rebukes you whom the Lord loves. He chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. The Lord's chastening, the Lord's correction is not a curse. It's not incompatible with his character of God who forgives. It is one of the blessings Christ acquired for us by his death and resurrection. We need the Lord's chastening, don't we? We want that testimony to be born that God does not tolerate sin in his people. His favor is not for the purpose of promoting unrighteousness. Not even a little bit. In Christ we are forgiven, but in Christ we are also corrected. We need that. We should give thanks to God for that. And then finally, in the great contrast between how things went in the book of Judges and how things go with the Lord Jesus Christ, we can say this. The one who sits on the throne to judge the one who will take vengeance, the one who will judge perfectly, we don't need to be afraid of his judgment because he will pass judgment as one who knows what it is to suffer unjustly. If you've been legally mistreated, if courts have gone against you, if you have suffered when you should not have suffered, this judge knows all about that. He was condemned unjustly. He was beaten unjustly. He was crucified unjustly. Oh, he knows the sting of unjust suffering. 
And you can be very sure that he will assign no unjust suffering to anyone, not to us, not to the worst sinner in the history of the world. The judgment of the Lord is according to truth, according to righteousness. God is very merciful. God is very kind. He does uphold justice. That's part of kindness. That's part of mercy to everybody to maintain a standard of right and wrong. God maintains that standard for us, his children. He does it by teaching. He does it by the work of the Spirit, convincing us of sin and helping us to turn away from it. Praise his name. He also does it by chastening and by correction. May we trust today in God who forgives and may we welcome his taking vengeance on our misdeeds. Amen.